0: Welcome day the Olympe Pod of Helsinki. And especially warm welcome today as we record on the 17th of March St Patrick's Day to the majority of our listenership outside of Ireland who have somehow made it to the 15th episode of this podcast. After 14 episodes and more than 17 hours of publicized content, we now have listeners from 41 countries. And to those 40 others, I have to praise your tenacity to have reached this point. You have listened through twaddle, niche bullshit, and a lot of emphasis on a very small nation, but your perseverance is all worthwhile. We've reached Helsinki, 1952 a landmark for Irish participation in the Olympic Games. From here on in, we're going to be taking a backseat. And when we, Ireland, make the headlines over the next seven or so decades, it's probably best left to obscure history, and myself and Chris are probably going to do our best to avoid such topics. So now, we leave such provincialism behind. We're looking outward we're focusing on international stories and international perspectives. And to mark this, we welcome a very special guest, my brother-in-law, James. Let's pause for the Olympangelas. Sinky, the last games. I said I did not know what to expect, but we talked about the arts. We talked about all sorts of things. There's no medals for the arts this time, and we have my brother-in-law James here.
1: Oh, long-time listener for some caller. Delighted to be here.
0: James really is. James has been here since the very beginning. Even if he wasn't related to me by marriage, he has still been a massive fan. He has been texting every single episode to tell us what we could do better and now here he is here he is to improve
1: (laughs) backseat (laughs) podcasters this for all the listeners out there just i just want you to know that dreams can come true never stop reaching for that rainbow you too could be a guest on your very favorite podcast that you were already a backseat podcaster
2: (laughs) you give you give us all something to aspire to now
1: yeah, I mean, I just want to, I feel like I could be the true Olympic hero here is that I'm the person who children the world over who enjoy listening to podcasts about obscure trivia from Olympic history can aspire to. They can be me.
0: It's incredible. It's incredible, James. And just like, we're, like, we're so honored. Like last week, okay, we had Oliver Dingley. He was like, he, I mean, he did, he did pretty good for Irish Olympics. Um, but to have you... James Ward, who was watching Oliver Dingley from Dublin, and then got like a T-shirt from Rio. I did. That was brought home by me. Like, I mean, h- how do you, how do you even like this? This just seems to be the most. I don't know how we booked you. How did we book you, James? I don't know.
1: I don't know. From someone who has visited upwards of three Olympic venues in his life, um, I don't know how you. I don't know how you top this i mean you've had olympic historians you've had actual olympians you've had other olympic podcasters and now you have me and i think to be honest i absolutely outshine all those people in terms of expertise and what i'm going to bring to this podcast delighted to be here and i've totally here um from my own free will and not strong-armed into it or book class minute or anything like that at all absolutely
0: and so you said you've visited three venues go
1: oh god okay um i've been to the olympic stadium in rome Lovely, lovely statues. Um, I've been to the Summer Olympic Stadium in Barcelona. Also nice. My earliest Olympic memory comes from from watching Bar- the Barcelona Olympics. I feel that's that's where my history with the Olympics begins, such as it is. And um, where else? Oh yes, and then and I saved the best to last. I have no. This is a. I know this isn't in season one of Olympopod, but it's a Winter Olympics <laughs> venue, and I have skied down the Olympic piece of the from the Turin Olympics. Mary was the Olympic um, snowboarding beast because we went snow or we went skiing in the snowboarding venue of Bardonecchia from the Turin Winter Olympics. So that's my Olympic.
0: Yeah, and of course you are quite the athlete. Um, you, the, your last skiing trip, I believe, was in the north of Italy in early 2020 and then you came back to <laughs> Ireland but anyway we'll move swiftly onwards James we'll move swiftly onwards we'll move we'll move swiftly swiftly onwards no but 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 James um what are the things that we have discussed quite a bit off off podcasting has been, um, the arts and, and like, I just, I just want to touch this briefly before we get on to the rest of 1952, because 1952 is the first time that, that arts is not meddled. And you, you were the first person that I came to and said, like, well, how was music marked? James, how was music marked? You don't know, but if you were the if you were the judge, how was it? How was the judge? No one knows. But if you were the judge, if you were to know, how was it done?
1: So you have talked an awful lot on the podcast about the music marking being mysterious and obscure and baffling, that people would not guess. No, you know, a gold medal. You know, there'd be maybe no gold medals awarded and all that. And I say more money for that sort of thing. Let's stop handing out you know, participation prizes, we all just competed, and yes, you're the best one here. If it's not good enough, it's not good enough. That's it. It's devastating that the arts are no longer represented in, uh, in the Olympic Games, and it's devastating that this is the first one, and the one that I have to be on, and I have no, uh, I've got no painting, I've got no music, there's no poetry to be to be uh, talking about. And I think it's a real shame that that's, that's all gone. How would, you, how would you, Marcus? I think... The only way you could mark anything would be, does this piece of music, does this piece of art, does this piece of painting or poetry, does it bring, does it make you cry? And if it doesn't make you cry, it's not good enough. Doesn't matter what it is. That's, that's got to be the, um, that's got to be the criteria, I feel.
0: We've brought you on as an expert today. And in fact, you are an expert exam corrector. You have corrected many years of exams and not just exams, state exams. And Something I'm sure you would know is about this kind of exam curve, which is that, you know, every year they, they decide what is the quality of, res- uh, 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 of participants. And then they decide that, okay, well, then this is the number of A's or dare I say golds that are awarded. This is the number of silvers, B's or bronzes. F's and and so I, I'm just wondering that like if you were if we were to introduce this in 2024 you know like should there be a curve on arch or should or, or you just said you, you kind of admire that the fact that there is almost this kind of like well if you're not good enough you're not good enough so what would you say and if you would say that there should be this kind of if you're not good enough you're not good enough should we do this for other sports? You know, if we didn't really enjoy the uh, hockey, should we just kind of say, "Nah, yeah, you'll get silver.
2: If you don't break 9.8 in the 100 metres, don't get the gold.
0: You don't get the gold.
1: I mean, and I think that's kind of fair, honestly. I mean, at this point, we're not interested in people coming up and going, yes, you were the fastest and the best on the day. Like, well done. I mean, we can all be the fastest on the day. It Doesn't mean that I'm the. Best. You know, I could. I've, I've been the. I've been the fastest 100 meters runner on the day plenty of times. I'm not going to the Olympics. I'm not showing up being like I've been. You know, I'm not. I'm not claiming it. Um, that you would imply that the state exam commission would mark to a bell curve on a podcast <laughs> on, on an internationally read podcast. I can pass no comment on that. But um, are are you saying that I might apply Velcro to a an artistic slash even sporting events? Do you know what I think I was? I think why not? And I think um, you know we're only going to give out we're only going to give out a handful of of golds and only if they're truly deserving of them and only if that's something which uh, sorry if it's a record that we could be sure would stand the test of time and stand for scrutiny of posterity. That's, that's
0: what I say. Very interesting.
2: Well, I'm delighted that we have chosen you for this Olympics, though, because Helsinki was the games where the most records were broken of any games until, anyone know?
0: Beijing. Beijing. <laughs>
2: yes. Yeah, well done, guys. Precisely. Yeah, so we we have a, a big step up in competition, which I guess is not that surprising, considering where we are in the post-war era. But there was me thinking the biggest news of these games was that the Soviets were coming. But in fact, it was that no art was coming. So, uh, yeah, big shock for me. I can throw all my notes out.
0: Yeah, throw it all out. But like we talked about this even last um, Olympopod, like, and and I really liked the idea that Oliver Dingley brought, um, who is an Olympian out of all of us. He is literally an Olympian. And he was like, why not have speed pottery? And like you know, he's not wrong. Let's have speed city planning. Let's have, you know, speed poetry, and and none of this kind of like you know just like five stanza crap.
1: You want an entire epic poem performed in five minutes? Correct. Mm. Love it. Yeah, all about Correct. it. Absolutely all about it. Haikus. No, no time for us.
0: Or like a haiku, but like very much like you're jumping over hurdle and you have to do a haiku. You have to do like a haiku (laughs) as you hurdle and like you see a new blossom and so you see the blossom and then you have to do quick haiku over the hurdle looking at the blossom for inspiration.
1: A haiku biathlon. It writes itself. The rules write themselves.
0: Hykatalon. Yeah. Anyway, I said talk about Helsinki 1952 I don't know I don't know Perhaps. but I suppose we, we, we've we been talking for a bit maybe at this point we should be talking since I did say in the introduction we should be welcoming our international listeners who do make up our, the majority of our listenership we sh- should probably be welcoming and also be um, talking a little bit about this particular Olympics that this Olympic part is meant to be about 1952
1: Chris good idea
2: Good idea. Where should we start, Ruth?
0: 1952, Helsinki.
2: Yeah, okay. Helsinki. Well, we all know that it was supposed to be uh, in Helsinki originally in 1944. It was given the Olympics in 1944 after missing out on the bid for 1940. Tokyo then couldn't host it in 1940 because they did a little thing where they invaded China uh, shortly before that. uh, Gave it back to the IOC. Helsinki said, don't worry, we'll take it. We'll build a stadium super quickly. Had the main stadium built. We're starting to build some other stadiums. Uh, World War II came around. They still wanted to host it and they decided they were going to be neutral. The Soviets had other ideas, came into the land and then eventually after losing a fair bit of land to Russia, decided that uh, they're not going to host it in 1940. And so eventually they did get it. And the biggest news, as I mentioned before, was that the Soviets were coming. It's the first time that the uh, USSR had competed in the Olympics uh, since the Bolshevik revolution. And the world really braced itself for the big battle between the Soviet Union and the USA. In effect, a Cold War Olympics.
0: Like We're going to get into a lot of Cold War politics over the next Three decades slash nine weeks of podcasting.
2: The good news is I haven't focused too much on the Cold War Olympics. There is a bit, of course, with the uh, the Soviets' battle with the USA, and you know they were given even by the the host Finland gave them a scoreboard so they could keep an account uh, of the unofficial score between them and the USA. But they also had were given their own Olympic village where all of the Eastern Bloc. Countries and the Soviet satellites were allowed to stay separate to the rest of the uh, athletes. Uh, in return, the Soviets were very accommodating to their Finnish hosts, and uh, they wined and dined them. They took care of them all the while, trying to beat the USA.
0: So here is my thing: that like I just I just feel like this is coming from in a very American centric mm. viewpoint, and. I'm very aware because we get to see where our listeners come from. We have a lot of listeners from America. We have very few from Russia. And the other other 40 countries that they come from, like, it's generally not super Soviet-linked. However, I'm just going to say, this all sounds a little bit kind of like, oh, like russians are being super crazy coming to the olympics and they're going to take all our medals and they're going to bring all their caviar which is literally what the reports say um i i I, I, I don't know chris i just i just would like a little bit of like balance here
2: what has been unbalanced so far (laughs)
0: <laughs> I'm not saying you're imbalanced. I'm just saying the world is imbalanced. I don't know. Okay. I just, I just, I, just, I just feel like there's a lot of stuff. Is like, oh, like the the Americans came and they were so heroic to Helsinki, and like they were, they brought Coca-Cola and they like brought like ten thousand uh, gallons of Coca-Cola to Helsinki. And fair play to them. We all love Coke. Um, but like, I, I, I don't know, Chris. Like, I, I feel like there's, I feel like there's a bit of like nuance here.
1: I understand the Americans were or sorry, the Soviets hosted the Americans and they had them over in, in their southern village and showed them up entirely. So do you feel like the caviar was balanced out by the Coke? Or do you feel like that was all just early Cold War politics showing off, look at this amazing Soviet wonderland that we've created over here? Americans, you can't afford to put us up over in your village. Take that capitalism.
0: Well, first of all, I think caviar is very salty and like there's nicer stuff to be had, like smoked salmon, or like even you can like do like grated carrots and like put like smoked sauce on it. So I, I, I don't, I, I'm not a huge fan of the caviar itself. And if anything, I, I, it's
1: too showy, to
0: be honest. It's too showy. It's too showy. So me, myself personally, if I was to engage in a Cold War politique um, battle, per se, I wouldn't be bringing the caviar. I would bring the champagne. I think that's I think I think that's like a certain balance of showiness. Uh, they did bring vodka, and um, they, so they brought vodka. They brought caviar. They brought something else. Anyone else our what they brought?
2: They're strong athletes. <laughs> strong
0: athletes. Strong athletes with a lot of testosterone, not suspiciously amounts of testosterone, just enough <laughs> testosterone. And I do think like 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 bringing a huge amount of vodka is probably a good like that's good to be bringing into your village and like been inviting other people with it and I'd be like, oh, have, let, let's drink, drink for drink.
2: I mean, it's kind of the perfect new guy on the block tactics. You know, you're you're, you're in, into this society. You've been out for quite a while. What do you do when you move into somewhere new? You host a big party. You get everyone around, get them on side and say, hey, like these Soviet guys, they put on a good show. Not such a bad bunch after all.
0: Yeah, no, okay, so I'm 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 trying to give us a bit of a um I'm not gonna say pro-Soviet, but like let's not just like be taking everything the Americans say. However, um our good friend friend uh David Goldblatt uh he was saying that quite a few of Because obviously the Soviet Union, much larger than what Russia is today, it takes up a lot of Eastern Europe as well, Central Europe and Central Asia. Um, They left what David Goldblatt calls the most ideologically suspect at home, including some very, very good athletes. For example, the Estonian Haino Lip. He was left behind because... He was very Estonian and he was, even though Estonia and Finland are very, very close, the Soviets were not willing to let him come in and win, even if it was for the Soviets, but then be bad-mouthing the Soviets. We've seen in very recent Olympics, uh, for example, the South Koreans talking about, and the North Koreans talking about the Japanese after they won Japanese medals, the Olympics are not apolitical and this is something that comes up in 2021 um, and the IOC trying to make it completely apolitical. Well, it's not because we have countries coming in and we have people coming in who have allegiances. Um, so there were a lot of people who probably should have won medals, whether they were gold or not, uh, in 1952, but were not allowed in because the Soviets were like, yet." yet you're not coming
2: it wasn't the only the only instance where athletes didn't compete because of uh, politics. there was also the case of the uh, there was the two Germanys, the two Koreas and the two Chinas all at this uh, Olympic Games as well. So the solution that was given for Germany was that uh, east and west would uh, be one country uh, they would compete as one. Uh, Although the team was purely from the West, the Chinese team, there was the uh, newly established People's Republic of China, uh, which participated. Uh, However, the vast majority of the team arrived at the end of the Games because they took a bit too long to make it all the way over. And so... There was only uh, one swimmer from the 40-member delegation who arrived in time to take part in the competition. The other teams, such as the basketball team and the football team, just uh, took part in some exhibition matches then after the Olympics. And then there was the Republic of China, or Taiwan, who withdrew from the Games on the eve of them in protest of the IOC's decision to allow athletes uh, from the uh, People's Republic of China to compete so basically both of them wanted to compete the IOC decided okay neither of your national olympic committees are going to be real neither are going to be accepted but in some sports where they do accept you you're allowed to compete in that and that uh, was not uh, sufficient for the Taiwanese they withdrew and only one athlete from the People's Republic of China actually competed in the end
0: but we even saw in nineteen forty eight with Ireland there were there were people who wanted to compete for for the for the Irish flag. They were born in the six counties in in Northern Ireland. They were not allowed to compete in nineteen forty eight London, and we saw people withdraw because of that. But Taiwan, like Taiwan, is now t- today a country of uh, 23, twenty three twenty four million, um and at the two thousand and eight Olympics they had to be there there had to be quite a lot of political it diplomacy is not quite the right word here because like it China was hosting this games and mm. Taiwan had to compete Taiwan was not allowed to bring their flag it's not it's not something resigned to 70 years ago this is something that still comes up Um, So it wasn't just this kind of obscure thing that happened in 1952. This is something that we are talking about with the Winter Games in China. We're talking about in Paris and L.A. and potentially in Australia. Like, I mean, these things keep on coming up.
2: And there was Saarland, the state in the very west of Germany. Now it is part of Germany. It also competed as an uh, independent nation. And uh, did not win any medals, unfortunately.
1: How big is Sarland? Was Sarland? Is, Sarland? is
2: Sarland? it's that? Sar- Sarland is still a uh, Sarland is still it, it is a state within uh, Germany. Uh, it had it had like at these games, I think they had like forty athletes. They have a population now of just under a million people. Right. Yeah. So it's uh, in the southwest of Germany, bordered by Luxembourg and France.
0: We had people who won medals from Luxembourg in this. Uh, did of, should in, we talk about games. some sport now? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know, Chris. I don't know. <laughs> Is it time yet? I don't know. I, I imagine the listeners time. are still listening, but I don't know. You, you go ahead, Chris, and talk about sports in the 1952 if you, if you, Olympics.
2: If you've made it this far, then congratulations. I mean, where do you start with the sport? Ah, oh, should we start with the Luxembourgish athlete who won a? Uh, Medal.
0: No, we shouldn't no. because there were some athletes from Liechtenstein. I've got no more information about that, but just like fair play, Liechtenstein bringing in a couple of athletes. They were cyclists, so I mean cyclists. Okay, I was in a yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, go on, Chris. Yeah, Luxembourg athletes medalists. Yes, go on.
2: So we did have uh, surprise, surprise, one gold medalist from Luxembourg, and those who are really big fans of uh, the podcast will know that. They were robbed of a gold medal. Not the first. They were robbed of a gold medal in the Paris Games in 1900 when they uh, had a marathon runner win, but then it was given to France. Luxembourg's still battling to hold on to it or to get it back, but uh, have not been given it yet. So uh, we're going to the 1500 meters for Luxembourg's success and uh, it was a real surprise to everybody including the runner himself so in the 1500 meters we had a German who was the real favorite coming into it he was the world record holder Werner Loic. Uh we also had a man who a lot of the uh, I guess a lot of track and field fans will know to this day Roger Bannister does anyone know what he's famous
1: for?
0: Tennis I mean I know
1: Roger no, Federer track- is tra- famous no. for tennis so <laughs> he's like uh, yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs>
2: What's 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 very close to the fifteen hundred meters
1: in terms uh. of the, 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 the mile the whatever minute mile that's what he's looking at four, the four minute mile yes he did it. he did the four minute mile yes Roger Bannister
2: is the first person to have broken the four minute barrier for the mile he did this after this though and so he was um he was a promising young Englishman at the time but also in this race was the little known Joseph Barthel from. Luxembourg and so he came through the rounds pretty handily like he was good enough everyone knew to be in the final but wasn't expected uh, to win it but he uh, came into the final bend uh, with Loig from Germany in the lead. And I saw a video of this with German commentary, which is quite hilarious because they are so excited for Loig to be going on to win it. But he folded completely. And I think that's acceptable in the 1500 meters. It's a brutal race, but he completely fell apart down the final straight. And Barthel, from somewhat nowhere, came through and took the gold, breaking his personal best by more than three seconds. Afterwards, he said, I didn't appreciate it right away that I'd won. For me and the public, it was a surprise. Uh, It was also a surprise for the organizers, who did not expect Luxembourg to win a medal. And so they decided not to give the band the score for the country's uh, national anthem. And so, during the medal ceremony, the musicians hurriedly improvised a tune that bore little to no resemblance to the Luxembourg anthem. But nobody, except of course uh, the winner himself, Barthel, knew that it wasn't the Luxembourg national. Anthem. Does
1: history record what they played, or anything? Like, was it just "Happy Birthday"? I mean, what did they? I, I'd... I, I
0: believe, I believe, James, that's what we was called bronze in the gold. in the tournament of Olympic uh, anthems no gold or silver was awarded yeah <laughs> no so was this one of the guys because this is the funny thing we used to talk a lot about doping but mm. kind of in a humorous way in the very, very early Olympics because doping wasn't illegal in the early Olympics. Like, if you wanted to take strychnine, if you wanted to take arsenic, if you wanted to take rat poison, fine, just do it. And if it helps you, brilliant. If it kills you, like, fair play, at least you tried. But, like, then there was this kind of period, probably within the interwar periods, where people were like, I don't know, like, maybe this isn't great. But then we kind of come into this period in the 50s where people are like, oh, no, you probably shouldn't be taking drugs to make you better. And I think this is kind of the first Olympics where people are like, were people taking drugs? Were like, did they they've got a bit of like war research in them? Mm. And like, am I right? Was he one of the people who was, I got to say, like 40 years later, kind of accused with absolutely no um, evidence whatsoever, kind of accused of uh, doping.
2: Very close. 54 years later, to be precise, a German journalist called Eric Eggers. And surprisingly, I know who he is and I have met Eric Eggers. He's primarily a handball journalist in Germany, but decided to dive into the past and look at one of the medals that Germany didn't win at these games, and sounds to me like a bit of sour grapes from Eric here, as in 2006 he accused Barthel of doping in Der Tagesspiegel. Eggers cited uh, the German physician, Oskar Wegener, who did some research on methamphetamine and other doping substances in the 1950s. So Wegener strongly denied that Barthel had any connection to this whatsoever. Basically, they just looked at this research from a doctor who may or may not have had some connection to athletes at the time and uh, then suggested that, well, if there were drugs there and they were testing how these drugs helped uh, athletes, then clearly he was taking it. But the thing is, the use of these substances wasn't controlled and it wasn't prohibited until the 1960s. And, you know, we know today in sports that people are pushing the boundaries all the time they're going to keep doing things they're going to keep taking things until it's illegal so maybe he was just a revolutionary Trailblazer.
0: Uh, yeah trail, yeah um but also like there's also absolutely no proof whatsoever that this guy did take any substance at all this is just literally something that came up 54 years later but, and again, I, I, I'm very hesitant for us to go on a tangent away from the 1952 Olympics, given that we spent the first 25 minutes talking about stuff that wasn't the 1952 Olympics. And you're
2: going to anyway. <laughs> I
0: am. I am. I am. I am. I'm just thinking, like, and it's something that I've mentioned before. I would very much like us to have a clean Olympics. Should there be an option, like a side Olympics that is for people who are just taking whatever they want it could, could be strychnine. it could be kind of like experimental drugs and like you know we watch sure we don't depending on our moral compass mm. but like I, i'm just wondering like like sh- should we should we see how fast cyclists can go with their legs if they've got like i don't know synthetic octopus in their legs i don't know
1: i'll knock yourself out olympics
0: Yeah, and knock yourself out, Olympics.
2: Are we hosted in Qatar? Perfect. Two two birds with one stone. Two birds with one stone.
0: (laughs) So, so you're, so you're basically talking about uh, FIFA World Cup. Is this what you're saying? Yeah, precisely. Look forward to it. Is that still going ahead? Yeah, still is. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. I love it. I love the. I love the heat. Anyway. Okay, so let's get back to 1952, Helsinki. And actually, I, I, look, like, I'm gonna just throw out this fact that I don't know anything else about. But this is the one of the first games because obviously, they had built a lot of infrastructure, um, in the 30s and 40s for their respective games that, that they thought they were going to be hosting, and which they then didn't. Um, but their swimming pools and diving pools they had to heat, and they'd like had little heaters in their pools so that the pools were nice and warm. Uh, for the swimmers and divers.
2: No better country for it than the home of the sauna.
0: Iceland, better home for it. Oof, no,
2: shot We don't have any Finnish people to defend themselves here. <laughs> James, what's your favourite sporting thing from 1952?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't have much to say about him. I and mean, I feel like other people will, but there is um, Zapotec. Who comes in and wins a marathon without ever having done a marathon before in his life? What a man!
0: It's so it's so early Olympics.
1: It's so that's what I was thinking. So we had that's what I was thinking. Sorry, so we had the early days where you know have a point of strict nine, knock yourself out, go for a run, uh, have some laudanum some somewhere along the track, take a nap somewhere, all that kind of stuff. None of us, and then we have Emil Zappertek coming in having no idea what he's doing. I believe he asks Jim Peters somewhere around the track, like, am I? is this right? Does this look right? Is this what I should be doing? <laughs> to which world record holder Jim Peters nods confusedly and then off he goes and wins the race, um, which Peters never finished, I understand. Yeah. So just, I feel like there's more to be said about him, but just, I put him on. What a guy. Oh,
2: Chris, amazing. do you
0: have any more information on this?
2: I have so I've so much more on Emil Satterbeck. And I think it's so beautifully fitting that in Finland, which is home to two of the, the great long-distance runners in the Olympic history so far that we've spoken about, Paavo Nurmi and Hannes Kolomainen, both of whom were there to uh, in the uh, lighting of the cauldron at the opening ceremony, that it's very fitting that the next great and perhaps the greatest long-distance athlete in the world uh, would emerge here, Emil Zatebek. And we spoke about him very briefly in the last... Uh, podcast because he won a gold in the 10,000 meters and a silver in the 5,000 years previous but this is where he really took hold not only did he win the marathon but he also won the 5,000 meters and the 10,000 meters a completely unprecedented hat trick of long distance medals now picture everyone knows Paula Radcliffe and remembers what she ran like head bobbing side to side tongue sticking out just looking in pain all the time a very ungraceful runner from the shoulders up but the actual form was brilliant well this is like 10 times worse than that so he was known for being an incredibly ungraceful runner uh, head banging around everywhere wheezing all the time every step looked like it could be his last Uh, but he was an incredibly good runner and he was known for his brutally tough training methods as well so he is being credited as uh, one of the people to uh, invent interval training and uh, hyperventilation training and hyperventilation training basically holding your breath and going as hard as you can until you pass out interval training going fast for a short amount of time going slow going fast going slow
0: is this because as you said that like he was just hyperventilating all the time did he just like create this training around the fact that he was unable to breathe
2: well apparently if you stick your tongue out it actually helps circulation Okay. I don't know. Yeah, that's, uh, well, I've, I was actually I'll, I'll asked that last it. week by somebody. Give it a go. I mean, who cares how you look when you do it? Do you look like a dog <laughs> with your head sticking out the window? Maybe. But it worked for him. It can work for anyone.
1: There's a pandemic on. You can do it with your mask over your face and no one will ever know. Perfect.
2: So he basically after after a while decided what he was going to do with interval training to pick up his pace because he was a very good long distance runner but lacked a bit of a kick that he was gonna do interval training and he began by doing 20 times 400 meters at a go. So he'd do one lap of a track and then slow 20 times. Then he added another 10, so we'd do 30, 40 times 400 in a day, 50 times 400 in a day, up to 100 times 400 meters in a day, which equates to about a marathon per day of interval training. So this guy was an absolute machine. But he'd never run an actual marathon before 1952. So he won gold in 10 kilometers, won gold in the five kilometers. And on the day that he won the five kilometer gold, his wife, Dana Zatopkova, won a gold medal in the javelin just a few moments after he won the 5000 meters. They had met for years before that had only known each other for a couple of months bought their wedding rings in london at the games and P said after that uh, his 5000 meter gold inspired her to win the javelin her reply was really okay then go inspire some other girl and see if she throws a javelin 50 meters <laughs> so him not being uh, him not being satisfied with only leading the the marriage gold race two to one Decided he was going to try and win the uh, marathon as well. Never entered it before. Never ran it before, as James said. uh, And his strategy, he said, was quite simple. He was going to go uh, find where the uh, record holder was, favorite Jim Peters, and just run with him and see what happens. So he did that. And um, at a certain point, yeah, he asked Peters if he thought they were going a bit too fast. Peter said, no, actually, we're going too slow, and so Zadipak's like, okay, <laughs> he picked up the pace. Uh Peters couldn't keep up with it; he uh fell out of the race with cramps, and Zadipak ended up winning by over two minutes in the end, and set an Olympic record. And he's a not just an incredible athlete, but a, supposedly uh, an incredibly nice man as well. He speaks all, an awful lot about. The friendships he made running and that basically the only reason he liked to do it and continue doing it for so long was for the friendships, meeting people, traveling. Everyone loved him. He was a polyglot, so he could speak to everyone. He invited people from the Western uh, Olympic Village, came over so they could meet him, spend time with him. At one point, uh, an Australian coach got stuck in the camp because he stayed for so long that the gates closed. So Zatopek said, okay, don't worry. You can take my bed. I'll sleep outside. And and so a really, uh, really nice guy. And just one real, just just so lovely. And it gets even better. After he'd finished running, there's one story from either 1966 or 1967, where he hosted another Australian, an Australian runner called Ron Clark. He visited Prague for a race and... Zatopek knew the bad luck that Clark had been facing. He was a middle distance track runner, held world records, and uh, was trying to win a gold in the Olympics and emulate Zatopek. But he'd always missed out on Olympic gold. Fell short quite disastrously in the 1964 Olympics. But Zatopek had a great respect for Ron Clark. He believed that he should have won a medal at some point. So, As he was leaving Prague and flying to London for another race, Emil Zadopek accompanied him onto the plane, which I guess he could do back in the day. You could just bring your friend onto the plane, make sure they're okay, and then get off as it flies off. Before it flew off, he slipped a package into his pocket, and he told him, don't open this until you've landed in London. Ron Clark was a bit uh, suspicious about it because yeah, they were they were leaving Czechoslovakia and flying to London. He was wondering, huh? Is this uh,
0: could be a waffle iron? It could be drugs. It could be a child. What is it?
2: What is it exactly? So he decided to wait until he was out of Czech airspace before opening it.
1: Good idea. And
2: uh, yeah, good idea. And in the package was not contraband. It was Zadobeks. 1952 Olympic 10,000 meter gold medal, and a little note uh, with it saying, "This is not out of friendship, but because you deserve it." Aww.
0: Little bit of a story there. Um, not, not, not to recenter a Olympic story of heroism onto me, however.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Rio 2016. Picture the scene. Picture the scene. I gosh. Invited to participate in a Czech house competition where I was given, I believe, five minutes to run around the Olympic history of Czechoslovakia and specifically the Czech Republic um, and come back and then uh, answer a quiz on the Czech participation in the Olympics and I was participating against two Brazilian children and I have to say I beat them comprehensively and it included um answers that I correct that I correctly answered on uh, Zapacheck so um yeah there are pictures there of me absolutely hammering against Brazilian children
1: and I can and I can testify to how happy you look in those pictures as well, Reese.
0: It was the greatest moment of my life.
1: Did you get a prize for
2: it?
0: I did. I got a Parker pen. Presumably, according to the Czechs, they are made in Czech. They're made in the Czech Republic, Czechia, as it is now. Mm. And I also just got a very triumphant photo in Czech House beside a Czech Olympian. <laughs> I, and that is all I needed. That's all I needed. Also, but I do also have my Parker pen.
2: Oh, okay. That's so what, I th- that th- that
0: was produced uh, in Czechia.
2: I I thought you were going to really like bring full circle to this story by saying that just like Emil Zatopek, you also gave away your prize to somebody you felt deserved it. <laughs> Such as a young Brazilian child.
0: No, I felt that those young Brazilian children needed that moment of uh understanding what it felt like to be in silver and bronze position. So that uh when it came to Tokyo 2020, or indeed Paris 2025, that they could that they could then uh come forward and really, you know, Answer comprehensively on Czech uh, Olympic history.
1: Fair, you're you're the real hero here, Ruth.
0: I am, yes, correct. It's a little bit like when myself and Crystal Beer, from a Brazilian uh, beerman at the Olympics, we were the real heroes.
1: I see a thread through these episodes, but okay, go on.
0: We're the heroes. Correct. <laughs> what I was going to say about Zapocek, because there, there was, this was the kind of the first Olympics where there were a lot of, as as we've said, there was this kind of East-West divide. And it was the kind of first Olympics where we had people trying to defect. And oh we, we've had we've had it kind of give or take around the place, but this was the first one where it kind of came to the fore. Um, and I am I have not been able to find I, usually before an episode I will look up how to pronounce someone's name. Um, I have not been able to find a proper uh, pronunciation so Romanian listeners I am pro- I am very sorry. but we did have someone called Praneas Kelchoy, who was a shooter. And he was uh, considered before the games as potentially politically and ideologically unreliable, so he did have a bodyguard um, around him at all times. Um, he seems to have, at some point, at the, like at the start of the games, to have escaped from his his um, bodyguards, but this was thwarted, and he was escorted um, from then on in everywhere, and. But at a certain point, he just told his handler that he wasn't going back to Romania. And his handler was like, well, you are. And he was like, well, I'm not. So this became, it, it kind of progressed from this verbal, I am, I'm not, to kind of fisticuffs. And at this point, um, the Finnish uh, police were like, oh, sorry, just by the way, this is just getting a little bit too physical. What's going on here? Kalchai was like, oh, I don't want to go back to Romania. And the Finnish were like, it's the Olympics, it's kind of apolitical, I'm not really sure what we can do here. Anyway, they were both thrown into jail. When they were both released, uh, some Finnish uh, people were like, we're going to hide him away. They did, and he he had enough political um, sympathisers who were able to get him um, asylum. But it was kind of this first sort of uh, big defection. Nineteen fifty two, which is it, it is gonna be something that becomes more and more prominent as we go on over the next couple of decades.
2: And he was only eighteen at the time. Right.
0: And how do you pronounce his name?
2: Uh I would say Penait Calcai" as well. I mean, I don't know. My Romanian is as good as yours. Yeah, look, we're not here for perfect pronunciations. In fact, probably we're here for incorrect pronunciations. I think that's why most people are here. I
1: love a cauldron, right? I love like an Olympic cauldron. I love... I just, I'm I'm all about it. And so the... As you may be familiar with the the logo, if you've if you've looked at the, the logo or the symbol or the emblem, if you like, of the uh, 52 games, it's a picture of the stadium and the tower that the, the Olympic flame was atop, the colon was atop. It's lovely. But the tower that the Olympic flame was perched on top of was 72.71 metres tall. Why was it that height? Why?
0: Because it's very tall.
1: It is quite tall. Yes, it is. I mean, in fairness, it is quite tall. And um, it was that height because that is the length um, of throw that a Finnish javelin thrower, javelinist, javeliner, that is the length of javelin throw that Matty hervenen did in the 19 th- 1932 games to win
0: gold. That's a brilliant, that's a brilliant fact. And that's like, I, I think we should like, that should be everybody's like, go to for how tall we build stuff from now on like like oh oh, like what is your low-rise building oh it's our like n- our national record for long jump what's your high-rise building it's like if a cricket was the same size as a human and they then did like a jump over something I don't know I think that's brilliant I think I think we should all do that that's brilliant well done the fins. No wonder they won. No wonder. No wonder they won so many medals in the architectural and city planning section of the arts in previous Olympics.
1: Not in their own one, though.
0: Yeah,
2: no. sad face. <laughs> that is an amazing fact. And to say that is uh, that's, that's a notch. really
0: good, that's just like a brilliant thing. Well done, the Finns.
1: Great way of judging anything, as as Rita, I, yeah. you yeah. know, yeah. throw something that's all of this. Yeah,
2: bravo. Alright, I've got two I've got two quick stories to track and feel then before we move on to other things. And first of all, can I sell you on this story by saying that we're now gonna talk about not only the closest race in Olympic history, but also the fastest cowboy stuntman to ever compete in the Olympics?
0: What
2: two stories in one. And for that tell
0: us more. Chris. Uh,
2: for that we go on to the men's 100 meter final all six finalists in this finished within twelve hundreds of a second of each other and in recorded time so the twelve hundreds of a second was automatic timing so fully automatic timing recorded timing four men all finished on 10.4 seconds so it was quite literally a photo finish and american dean smith was the man who missed out. Equaled the time of the winner, but he missed out, finishing fourth. He believed to this day that he should have won a bronze medal, at least. He did go on to win the 4 by 100 meter relay, and then he would go on to have a glittering career in Hollywood. Dean Smith then performed as a professional rodeo cowboy and a stuntman in various Western movies such as The Alamo, How the West Was Won, and El Dorado. He was also in Western TV shows such as uh, Tales of Wells Fargo, Maverick, and Walker, Texas Ranger.
0: Doesn't sound like he was part of Tarzan, though, does it? No,
2: no, he missed out on that, I think. And he wasn't, uh, yeah, I guess he wasn't a good enough swimmer for Tarzan. But when, and it was a, there was a nice little feature on the Olympic channel about him. But when I saw that title of the fastest cowboy stuntman to ever compete in the Olympics, I thought to myself, oh my God, he was in the equestrian. But it wasn't to be because at this Olympics, for the first time, you could have non-military officers uh, compete. So we actually had civilians in the equestrian, but our cowboy discovered his love of horses after finishing fourth in the 100 meters. And very contrary to James's statement at the beginning, where he said that he doesn't care about people who were fastest on the day, none of these men would have gotten a medal on this day because the guy who ended up winning uh, afterwards, he was just like, you know, I was just uh, I was just the fastest on the day and uh, you can never take that away from me. Well, guess what? James just took it away from you. I'm taking it taking away from you.
1: It gets, look, a lot of things are said at the start of the podcast. It's a long time. It was a long time ago. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I actually do have a track and field um, to mention, which was Horace Ashenfelter III. Uh, he was competing in the 3000 metre steeplechase. He was not expected to medal at all. In fact, there was a Soviet um, athlete, uh, I believe it was Vladimir Kasentov, who was expected to win. Horace was an FBI agent and when he got this surprise victory and of course this is coming from all the context of the Cold War all the American newspapers uh, leapt to this and they all said this was the first time that an American FBI agent was ahead of the Soviets and everyone had the big lols
2: zing <laughs> now we haven't spoken about race walking in a long time oh and there's a good reason why I
0: mean there is because the first time we mentioned it which is also the first time that the olympics ever mm. mentioned it was the first time that the it was ever in the olympics everybody said including the olympic organizers that it was the worst thing to ever happen to sport and that everyone just needed to stop and like it was just awful and like i personally love it i know recently there's been a bit of an issue ever since they've pushed the like things on their shoes which has shown that every single one of them is cheating and unfortunately that means they're all disqualified so there's a big issue with all of this but race running running is very fun if you're able to give eight hours of your time to it and i just yeah I, I don't know like okay it's a terrible 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 spectator sport and it's brilliant and we should never lose it go on chris what's your point
1: <laughs>
2: Well, it fits in very perfectly to what you were saying. I mean, at the beginning, or the 56 years after the first Olympics, when nobody knew the rules, and now 59 years later, nowadays, when everyone's getting disqualified, we had a bit of both in 1952. first of all, i saw a video on youtube which was like this from the archives it was called the charlie dean archives and it was a video focused very much on the u.s military athletes at these games Uh, but it had the sassiest bit of commentary on the walk no reason whatsoever all the commentary was totally fine until it came to the walk and i think it was the 10k walk and uh it goes a bit like this. It was like, this windmill swinger might be hustling down to the local bistro for a quick beer. Easy, buster. You don't want to take off. <laughs> then George Coleman of England, presumably a suburbanite, train on catching the 818 for London. Leads for a couple of miles. So these totally random and sassy lines in the middle of a race which was actually plagued with controversy because everyone was getting disqualified. Uh, because they had some very overzealous Finnish officials. And it got to a point...
0: Who we are probably correct, probably as we correct. now know with hindsight. <laughs> now that we know with hindsight, and we now have a lot of technology, all those overzealous judges, they were correct. Yeah,
2: but it, it, it caused the 10K walk to really descend into farce. And for that, we can only... <laughs> like
0: 2016.
2: We can only bring in our incredible source jeff tibbles and his book the olympics strangest moments and i'll just go through the final paragraph Uh, and in the face of such overzealous judging the final descended into a farce. wait i just said something very similar to that
0: (laughs) 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 chris keep that in
2: keep that in god damn it jeff you're stealing my words am i jeff tibbles did i write this anyway <laughs> <laughs> well
0: we've tr- we've we've been we've previously tried to
1: find oh who he
0: is and he doesn't
1: uh, exist, my cover so maybe is blown can God, we get that blown. can we get that spider-man meme where he's pointing at himself <laughs> 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 all
2: right so amid suspicions that the judges were determined to secure a scandinavian victory Sweden's uh, Jan Mikkelersen led into the closing stages from Switzerland's Fritz Schwalb and Bruno Junk of the Soviet Union. Or (laughs) (laughs) Bruno Junk. Bruno Junk, we're going to stick with that. (laughs) (laughs) Then on the final lap, Schwalb and Junk were both informed that they were about to be disqualified. In a bizarre scene, the pair of them began to run. For the final 30 metres, to out-sprint the judge who were scurrying along in hot pursuit, trying desperately to disqualify them before they reached the finish, as all eliminations had to take place during the actual race so you had the two guys in second and third place actually running on the final lap to the uh, finishing line and since the judge failed to catch them in time their second and third place their silver and bronze medals were allowed to stand
0: we're not all end lines finish lines at the Helsinki Games
1: what (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry
0: we're not we're not not all the end Points at every race at the Helsinki Games. <laughs> Finish lines. <laughs> I just.
1: <laughs> have you been sitting.
0: That?
1: <laughs> That's the only reason. That's the entire reason you have been doing. <laughs>
0: I've I I just been waiting for 1952 Helsinki. Since
1: 1896. Oh my god. It's all been leading up to that moment.
2: You know what, Ruth? They were Russian to the finish line. Whee!
0: I've got to check that out later.
1: Oh, God. <laughs> Soviets. <laughs> So Team GB only won one gold medal during the entire 52 games, which was in show jumping. The hero of the arrow was a guy called Colonel Harry Llewellyn, who was riding on a horse called Fox Hunter, and then there was obviously the rest of the team as well. But Harry was particularly enamored of his horse, as he would be. There's very close bond, as you can imagine, between um, a, a horse rider, uh, a show jumper, and his horse. And seemingly, he in before he kind of, came to be um, Fox Hunter the horses um, what do we say do we say rider? do we say owner whatever
0: I, I say like back in the day I say it was fairly like blurred lines like nowadays the jockey is generally not the owner but I would say back in the day I say your dad owned that
1: horse oh I see what you're saying but I'm not sure we say jockey now when it's a jockey
0: no I know it's a rider
1: indeed and, yeah, right, I, that's I the know. word I'm looking for. yeah so so before uh, the two came together Mr. Llewellyn he was an interesting guy. He was the um, second son of a, of, a, of a coal miner who became a baronet. He sort of, a, sorry, the coal miner, he owned a coal mine. It wasn't exactly Danne Mines, but he was, um, he owned <laughs> a co- coal, mine, coal mine and became, uh, and was was titled for it. And um uh, himself, Llewellyn, it went on to inherit the barony. This
0: is a bit like saying, oh, the second son of some sort of newspaper man Llewellyn Murdoch I don't know I don't know anyway he, he, he was his his father was a multi-millionaire coal magnate
1: oh yeah well, 100% astonishingly wealthy Llewellyn himself married a uh, the daughter of a baron from the Channel Islands but anyway but uh, he seemed to have gone through all of the genealogical records for horses for going back decades and decades and decades and Fox Hunter was, was the one and they went on together to win or more than seventy-eight show jumping titles, including our own Aga Khan Cup from the Dublin Horse Show. Um, I think three or four times. I wasn't sure in that, but a, a number of times. And um, yeah, so they were down sixteen points in the morning. I believe um, that the show jumping happened. It must it must have been towards the very end of the competition, because or the of the Olymp- the games even because the Pape footage of it. If you look it up, you can see the footage of the the extinguishing of this flame ceremony and um, you can see all of the show jumping stuff around the stadium so the show jumping took place in the main arena at two enormous crowds which is oh. quite maybe slightly unusual so you can see the entire stadium is packed and when the the flame is being extinguished for the end of the games you can see all the show jumping stuff is around there but anyway in the morning events they were 16 points down, um, where they had they had amassed a, a rake of, of faults, but they made it up in the afternoon with a with a perfect run. And after that, it was after particularly after the Olympics, Fox Hunter became sort of a household name around around Britain. And there was a chain of Fox Hunter cafes, which was set up by the Llewellyns. Again, you know, poor mining family made good <laughs> and sets up a chain of cafes. <laughs> set up a chain of cafes about their their, their Olympic winning horse. Yeah, and then he was such a celebrity that his his skeleton, the horse's skeleton, after he died, died in 1959, I believe, was uh, and still is preserved in the Royal College, sorry, Royal Veterinary College Museum. But his hide, the horse's hide, was buried in Barang, in a mountain in Aber, Abergavenny, which is the part of Wales where Llewellyn was from. And when Llewellyn himself died, uh, his ashes were scattered around the monument of his horse. So uh, quite, you know, a lasting bond that, uh, between the two of them. And, and that's that's where he ended up. Um, interesting guy, as I said, Llewellyn. His two sons went on to become 1960s, like like 1960s swinging, swinging London. Um, what's the word I'm looking for?
0: Men About Town Men About
1: Town is exactly the word I'm looking for <laughs> exactly the word I'm looking for and mm-hmm. um, Die and Roddy Llewellyn again young minor does good um, are um, you know are, are linked with people such as like Roald Dahl's daughter Tessa Dahl with Orson Welles daughter Beatrice and also Roddy uh, Llewellyn uh, features in series three and four of The Crown as having gone out with Princess Margaret for eight years The Gardener there you go
0: I try to bring in every couple of Olympopod stuff that I've learned off Wikipedia that I just think is just stuff that we should all know. And one thing that I liked about this um entry about this horse was that there is now a car park beside his uh, it that is beside his um Burial site, which I think is just great. Fair play. I also think that like it's very topical at this time because we're all suddenly very interested in what happens to the bodies of horses that we ride <laughs> to death. Um, and so I, I I just think it's very interesting that we we just think that like we should preserve the skeleton, we should bury the hide, we should like get the owner's ashes like spread around it. Ah! Well done. I also like that up to this point that we've had kind of like a couple of mystery horses on Wikipedia. We've had a couple of like horses have won gold medals, which we don't know their current places of rest or disrest. But anyway, delighted that we know where this hide is. Uh, that we can we can park we can park our cars beside this monument at it's hide, and um, and yeah brilliant love
2: it i think it's nice that the king gave uh, his congratulations to fox hunter at the time you know nobody gives the credit to the horses
0: nobody gives the credit to the horses
2: on equestrian i did mention before that it was the first games where uh, civilians could compete including women Ruth, and we all love women at the Olympics. And you know what?
0: We love we the ladies. We love
2: even more than women at the Olympics. A certain kind of woman. A Danish woman? A Danish woman! Yes. <laughs> Ten points. Go to James.
0: So listeners, just to reiterate, this could be you one day. James is like a proper, as a proper fan of Olympopod. He understands when we say women, he goes, Danish women, women, Danish women, women, Danish women. So that could be you one day.
2: Among the 134 riders, we had a total of four women competing in, uh, in dressage only because... Uh, women were not allowed to do any jumping uh, and definitely not allowed to do any eventing because that was considered too dangerous. But Fair. one of the four women competing was Denmark's Liz Hartel, who at the age of 23 in 1944, so eight years prior to these games, was paralyzed by polio. So she uh, was paralyzed from the knee down at this stage, she managed to regain a lot of muscle function but remained paralyzed below the knee and so she was not able to mount or dismount the horse uh, without assistance. Despite that, still managed to win individual silver medal at the uh, dressage competition. The first woman to win an individual medal at the Olympic Games in direct competition with men. Boom. Go Danish women. All right, so after over an hour of talking, we're going to leave it there for part one of helsinki 1952 that's right we're not finished yet we've still got plenty to go in this helsinki talk and what we've decided to do is to break it into two parts so this is it for part one part two is going to come out next week so hope you enjoyed it and hope you'll join us again for part two of helsinki 1952 until then goodbye